Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today on The Shaleen Show. Today, we're going to talk about a pretty heavy topic. So I should probably give you a little trigger warning before we get into it. This is a, a sad one, but it's a really important topic. I'm going to, in just a moment, introduce you to my friend Charles Johnson. Charles and I met under unfortunate circumstances. Consumer Watchdog Group introduced us after learning about my own fight to advocate for the victims of a Orange County plastic surgeon, which has developed or evolved into a, a larger, a more profound cause for me, which is to change patient rights, to change this antiquated, outdated cap in certain states, in particular here in the state of California, that means basically... The cap is so low, no attorneys will can afford to, I should say. Most attorneys cannot afford to take on a case against a doctor. No matter how egregious, no matter how obvious, no matter how negligent the actions are, it's just not worth it because the doctors, their insurance companies, provide them legal representation, the best legal representation with an unlimited budget to defend these doctors against a, a plaintiff attorney who frankly will have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in most cases to bring a case of medical malpractice to trial, which means there's no money to be made. An attorney who takes on a case like that in most instances is going to lose money. What does that mean? It means that the doctors are left unchecked. There's no consequences. The medical board doesn't oftentimes revoke or even suspend their licenses. So frankly, everything is set up to protect the doctors. Now, again, I am not by any stretch of the imagination anti-doctor. Thank goodness for doctors and surgeons and those who are, are doing good work and who have taken the oath very seriously to do no harm. The problem is there's a very small, very small percentage of these rogue doctors, these doctors who've lost their humanity, who do not care, who are hack jobs and whack jobs, and that small, very small percentage of them are able to do as they please unchecked. Because of a, a personal experience that you're going to hear about in just a moment from Charles, because of his own personal experience, Charles has committed his life to advocating for patients, to change the epidemic maternal mortality rates in our communities, to lift the cap here in California, but to change the laws on a federal level. 
There's so much that can be done, but so much of this, people are just shocked and they can't even believe that these laws are in place until they uncover them. And most people are not going to uncover them until they experience their own nightmare. And then it's too late. Charles is doing everything in his power to to make a change, and I am here fighting with him. We've got to change the laws. We have to change our perceptions. We have to change our biases when it comes to treating people of color, when it comes to believing black women specifically in the healthcare system. This is an honest and at times uncomfortable conversation. So please take care before listening and be sure to check the links that we talk about below in our show notes. That's really, really important today. Shalene, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you. I've been really excited to have this conversation. I just appreciate all the work that you're doing and the things that you have chosen to stand for. And so for me, this journey really started. I was fortunate enough to meet a woman that absolutely changed my life, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so when we talk about Kira, Shalene, we're talking about a woman that raced cars, who flew. She had her pilot's license. She spoke five languages fluently, right? I mean, way out of my league, right? <laughs> And, you know, she just challenged me to be a better person in every single aspect of my life. And I'm a big kid and I always wanted to be a dad. And so we found out we were welcoming our first son, Charles V in 2000 wow. and yeah, Charles V, right? In 2014, I was on top of the world. But when we found out, and we always talked about how cool it would be to have two boys that were really close in age and how it just be neat to have these you know, these little guys grew up being kind of built-in best friends. And so when we found out we were welcoming our second son in April of 2016, we were on top of the world, right? I mean, just so happy, so excited. So Kira and I are both natives of Atlanta, and we had just relocated from Atlanta, from our home in Atlanta to Los Angeles. And So your youngest at this point was, when you found out you're pregnant with your second, your youngest yeah, is 18 months? 18, 18 months, 18 months okay. apart. Yeah. Yeah. So- you know, and so we relocated to Los Angeles and part of the painful irony of what I'm going to share with you and your listeners today is that as a father, as a husband, you want the best for your family. You want the best for your wife. You want the best for your children. So we made the decision to give birth at Cedar sinai because it was a place that we thought was the best, right? It had this reputation of being the place, the place where everybody went to have their babies. It was supposed to be this research hospital. And I really felt like this was the place where my family would be in the best hands. Did Kira ever have complications of any kind with her first? Yes, pregnancy that's a great question. So, so exactly. So during, that's a great question. So during our first pregnancy, Kira was perfectly healthy, but she had, Charles was born via emergency C-section because when she was having contractions, his heart rate was dropping. And then so she had to have, but he was born perfectly healthy, gave us a little scare there, and she recovered, you know, very well from her first cesarean. So to that point, that's an excellent question. Because of that, we had what was supposed to be a routine scheduled C-section for Langston's delivery. So at our doctor's recommendation, on April 12th of 2016, we walked into Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, where we expected to be the happiest day of our lives and walked right into a nightmare. Mm. You know, we went in at two o'clock in the afternoon for the cesarean delivery. Langston is born perfectly healthy, 10 fingers, 10 toes, you know, super handsome, like I joke, just looking just like his dad. And this was it, right? Just this was it, right? Just that, that our family was complete. 
you know, everything we had hoped for, we had dreamed, everything we had dreamed about was here. And so they take us from the delivery room back to recovery, which is normal in a cesarean delivery. And as Kira is there resting and Langston is in the little incubator toaster thing, right? You know, he's taking a nap and they're just both there resting. And I'm just sitting there just so just overcome, just, just thinking about just how tremendously blessed I am, right? As I'm watching Kira rest, I'm watching my beautiful wife rest, and I'm watching my new son. And I'm just soaking it all in, Shaleen, just that pride of being a father for the second time. And as I'm sitting there, keep in mind, we've gone in at two. So this is around four o'clock. And as I'm sitting there, I look down and I can see the catheter coming from Kira's bedside begin to turn pink with blood. Mm. Right. So this is around four o'clock in the afternoon. I bring it to the attention of the doctors and the nurses at Cedars. They come in, they examine Kira, they examine her physically, they ordered some blood work, but very importantly at this time, they ordered a CT scan that was supposed to be performed stat. And when I say stat, what does that mean? Right? Immediately, right? Right now. And so at this point, I'm concerned, but I'm thinking, my wife is healthy, my baby is healthy, and we're at Cedar Sinai, right? What was their body language? Did you get of like, oh, this is something we need to attend to? Yeah, they were like, okay, we're going to take a look. And I didn't, I wasn't, like I said, I was concerned, but I'm thinking that we're okay, right? Mm-hmm. Five o'clock comes, six o'clock comes. No, five o'clock comes, still no CT scan, right? Keep on, was ordered stat just after four. And I'm asking, where is this? And they're saying, oh, it's coming, it's coming, coming. Six o'clock comes. Still How is no Kira CT responding scan. at this point? Is she... Are you trying to hide your concern? Is she concerned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'll definitely, yeah. And so Kira, you know, I'm trying to just kind of hide my concern. I'm more adamantly asking, look, where's, what's going on? Where's the CT scan? They're telling us it's coming, right? Five o'clock comes, right? Six o'clock comes, still no CT scan. Now, seven o'clock comes. Now, by this time, Kira is getting increasingly pale. She's in more and more pain, right? And now she's shivering uncontrollably mm. because she's losing so much blood. And you can still see the catheter. So can you see can it. see the, pink, the catheter right? is, is and, red, it's pink. Exactly. And they were doing, during this time period, they were also doing ultrasounds and they could see that her abdomen was filling with fluid, right? And so there were very clear signs very early on that Cure was hemorrhaging significantly internally, right? Her blood work came back and it showed that her white blood cell, her red blood cell count, her hemoglobin and her hemocrit were all significantly low, right? But still they hadn't taken her back for a CT scan. Now they start having a conversation. Maybe we need to take her back for surgery. Still doing nothing. And I'm asking, look, where is this? Eight o'clock comes. Still haven't taken her back for surgery. Still haven't taken her back. Nine o'clock comes and I'm asking and now I'm look, please, what's going on? And I remember the only thing that they were doing for her is giving her IV fluids. And I remember and this is one of the toughest things. I remember a woman, a nurse coming in to change her IV fluids. And after she gets done, I pulled her to the side and I just I just held both of her hands. And I said, look, my wife isn't doing well. They told us that they were going to take her back for a CT scan hours ago. They told us that they might take her back for surgery. Nothing is happening. Her condition is continuing to go downhill. She's in a lot of pain. Can you please help us? Please. 
And this woman said to me words that still haunt me to this day, Shaleen. She snatched her hands from me and she said to me, sir, your wife just isn't a priority right now. Your wife just isn't a priority right now. Nine o'clock, 10 o'clock comes, Kira's still there suffering. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. It wasn't until after 12.30 a.m. that they finally made the decision to take Kira back to surgery. After allowing her to bleed and suffer internally for more than 10 hours, while we begged and pleaded for them to just simply do something, right? And so at this point, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, but I'm relieved because I'm thinking they're finally doing something. They're doing right. something. And so they, they're taking her down to surgery. And I'm, and you got to keep in mind, this is a woman that was a skydiver. And I think about this, this haunts me also, because as I'm walking next to her, her bed and I'm holding her hand, she said words to me that I don't think in all the years I've known Kira that I heard her say, she said, baby, I'm scared. I'm scared. And I did the only thing I knew how to do as a husband is I'm just holding her hand. And I'm just trying to tell her, baby, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. And as I'm walking down the hallway, the doctor that was responsible for my son's delivery and was going to take her back into surgery, he overheard this conversation. He said to me, this is what he said to me. He said, look, he said, it's not a big deal. Sometimes these things happen. I'm going to take her in. I'm going to go into the same incision I made for the cesarean. I'm going to find out what's going on. I'm going to open up and I'm going to fix it. And she'll be back in 15 minutes. She'll be back in 15 minutes. And finally get to the end of this long corridor. The the doors to the operating room open up and they close behind her. And that was the last time I saw Kira alive. Hmm. When he took her back into the operating room and opened her up, there were three liters of blood in her abdomen from where she had been allowed to bleed and suffer needlessly while the staff at Cedar sinai did absolutely nothing. And when he opened her up, she coded immediately and her heart stopped immediately. They worked on her for some time, but they were unable to save her. Oh, my God. You know, this will be uh, six years in uh, April. And even though this work has become my life, I'm always transparent about the fact that when we walked into Cedars-Sinai Hospital that afternoon, so full of hope and so excited, the thought of the fact that Kira would not walk out to raise her sons, it never crossed my mind. And when this happened, there's failures, and we'll talk about that, and we'll get into this, and I'm, I'm so thankful for you just having this conversation but there's failures, there's, there's system failures, there were policy failures. The list of failures, Kira deserves so much better. But the biggest thing that we're seeing time and time again with maternal health, with healthcare overall in your situation is there is a failure of humanity mm-hmm. and a lack of fundamental human decency, particularly when it comes to women in healthcare that we're seeing and it's having devastating and oftentimes fatal consequences. And so as you can imagine, like this was, this was my world and my world was turned upside down and I'm lost in a place in a space of facing, trying to raise two babies under two by myself. Right. And as I was trying to put the pieces back together, Shaleen, 
I began to hear these stories. Women, I began to hear these stories of other women who were having these catastrophic birthing experiences. And then other women who had died or made the ultimate sacrifice, giving the gift of life. And at first I was honestly thinking that this is people's way of trying to support me in my grief, right? And it's, that's why all these yeah. stories are, gra- are, are, are coming towards me. But the more I'm hearing this stuff, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, something's not quite right. And that's why I began to do the research myself. And I came to learn America's dirty little secret. And that is that mm. right here in the United States, more women die in childbirth than any place else in the developed world. The United States, the richest country in the world, is also the most dangerous place in the world to give birth. Right. When we talk about it and take it a step further, we have devastating racial disparities within that. And the fact is that African-American women are dying five times as often as other ethnic groups. And so. And those who are not watching on YouTube, who are listening to us, you are a black man. I'm a black man. And your wife was black. Yes, yes, yes. And in the research that you've done before we even go into that, if I can. Sure. And and I apologize if this is digging too deep or very triggering, but how do you respond when that doctor, when the staff who you've been begging, begging and pleading, and it's so obvious that your wife is failing. It's so obvious that she, you're losing her. How do you respond without just wanting to murder someone when they come to tell you that your wife has passed? That was hard. We talk about fundamental human decency. I remember just uh, being in that waiting room and just pacing back and forth and pacing and praying and with my family and just waiting on news and my eyes are fixed at the end of this corridor because I know that when we get news, it's going to come from there. And they told you 15 minutes. So from the time they took her back, from the time someone came to you to tell you things it was um, going well. It was well over an hour and a half, probably about two hours by the time they finally came out and gave. So what happened is they came out twice. The first time what had happened was, is I was there because keep in mind, this is after midnight. So my mother had taken my older son back to our our place because he was just tired. He was just ready to be a big brother and it was time for him to get some rest. And Kira had family that had flown in from Atlanta and they had gone to check into their hotel. And so, but when they finally took her back to surgery, I was there by myself. And I'm in this waiting room, Shalene. And the, one of the things that was so weird about this place and the space is the same waiting room I was in was the same waiting room I was in at one o'clock that afternoon when we brought Kira into the hospital. And at one o'clock in the afternoon, this room is filled with new mothers in their big bellies and balloons and families and anxious anticipation of life. Now it's after midnight and it is empty. I, it is me alone in this huge waiting room. And the only thing in this, it is all, I almost have PTSD around this only thing that I can hear, even when I hear, um, when I hear vacuum cleaners, the only other person in that room or in that space was the custodian running the vacuum cleaner. Mm. And I just hear this sound over and over again in my mind. And so the double doors open and two residents came out and they said, Mr. Johnson, we need you to have a seat. And I said, what? They said, we need you to have a seat. And I'm thinking, okay, like these are kids, right? They've been watching too much TV, right? And they tell me to have it. They tell me to sit down and they're like, 
And then they look at each other and they're like, almost like, who's going to draw the short straw and give him some news? And one of them says to me, well, look, we couldn't be back there any longer without letting you know what's going on. And I'm like, okay. And they said, well, when Dr. Naeem opened Kira up, there was a lot of blood and she coded. I'm like, okay. And do you remember like, old was, it, and I, was it not processing what? It wasn't, pro- it, was, yeah. it, was, it was, it wasn't processing. I'm like, okay. And at this point it started sounding like, and I hate to date myself, meaning so how old I am, but some of your listeners may remember like old Charlie Brown starts sounding like, wah, 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 oh, yeah. wah. like you're not wah, processing. Wah. Right. Yeah. Like, and they're, and they, they're talking and they're trying to give me this explanation. They're saying a bunch of different stuff. And I stopped and I said, look, I said, I appreciate you coming out here to let me know what's going on, but I need you to get back in there and bring me my wife back. Like, you're not doing anything out here with me. Get back in there and bring me my wife back, please. Right. Even at this point, what they said was they said that her, that, that her heart stopped her, but then this is what they said. They said that her condition is critical and there, but we're still working on her. That's all I needed to hear because in my mind, like this is Kira. She's the closest thing I've ever known to a superhero. It got bad for a second, but they're going to fix it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, yeah. she's going to be okay. Yeah. Right? I still didn't think, like, and I'm also an optimist. That's the way yeah. my mind works. Like, it right, got right. bad for a second. But they're they're working on her, right? Get back in there and, and, and bring her back. And I know that we're jumping around a little bit, but I think this is important. And feel free to use this and however you all want to. Another thing about what happened was, before they took her back to surgery, they said to us, well... This is just, we talk about fundamental human decency. Before they took her back to surgery, we're just sitting there waiting and Kira's resting. I'm just stroking her head and I'm just holding her hand as we're just waiting for something to happen. And out of the blue, abruptly, one of the residents just says, um, excuse me, I need to let you know. This is just, this is a testament to how, who Kira was. She said, I just need to let you know that if we take her back for surgery and we're not able to stop the bleeding, then we might have to do a hysterectomy. Jump, drop that news on me just like that, right? Kira, in who is extremely weak, drifting in and out of consciousness, heard that and sat straight up in the bed and started trying to snatch her monitors and her IVs off. Screaming, please don't let them do that to me. Please, please, please. So now I'm stuck in a place with this woman who's in extreme pain, who is not doing well. And now I'm having to calm her down and tell her nobody that's okay. And then she goes, oh, and she just walks up. Oh, I'll just let y'all chat. And then walks off. No further explanation. Fundamental human decency, Shaleen, right? Almost as if it was routine. Right? Right? And so fast forward, when they took her back to surgery and I'm in that waiting room, in my mind, hysterectomy is absolute worst case. Yeah. If it gets bad, this is what it's going to do. And in fact, they shoved a waiver in my face when they took her back there and they made me sign a waiver saying that it was okay for them to do a hysterectomy, right? And so in my mind, I'm thinking worst case, worst case. And so when they came out there to give me that news, I was bracing myself. When they told me to have a seat, I was bracing myself thinking. Oh, yeah. Literally said to myself, we've been through a lot and we can get through this. I was preparing for them to tell me that news. Right. And they told me that her situation was critical, but they were continuing to work on her. I told them to get back in there and bring me my wife back. And so I called 
Kira's mother, I called Kira's aunts. I called the family. And I told them that what was going on and everybody came up to the hospital. So now I'm there with Kira's aunt, Kira's cousin, Kira's mother, Kira's brother. And I all in this waiting room waiting for news. That same set of double doors. And this is, we talk about fundamental human decency and insult to injury. Those same set of double doors opened, same two residents come walking towards us along with a doctor who we'd never seen before, who I later found out was the trauma surgeon who had been called in to try and save Kira. And they gave us the news that Kira had passed. The doctor that was responsible didn't even have the decency to come out and tell us. He sent those kids out there. He sent those residents out there to give us the news, right? While he slipped out the back door. And when we got that, when it, the best way I can, I can describe it is it's like a, an atom bomb being dropped on everyone that you love. And I remember Kira's mother falling to the ground. And I just oh. remember the, 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 I can still, I hear haunted mm. by like the sounds of her, of her just screaming for her baby, right? The sounds of her brother crying, hysterically, I'm just there frozen in disbelief. And I was like, wait, no, like, no, no. And that processed. And then I blacked out for a minute and I think I kind of had to be calmed down. But there's nothing that can prepare you for news like that. There's nothing that can prepare you for watching people that you love and that love cure so much and so much pain. You go from the happiest day with family around you to the worst day. Yeah. Yeah. In a matter of hours, right? So, yeah. Today's episode of The Shalene Show is sponsored by our friends at Organifi. At the height of my fitness career, I lived on protein shakes and protein bars, and they made me gassy and bloated and uncomfortable. And the second I stopped eating those and consuming those things, I never had gas again. So I was really afraid to try any other protein powders. On a whim, I recently ordered the chocolate protein powder from Organifi, and lo and behold, not surprisingly, no gas. You know, I don't know if that's an issue for you, but for me it was. Anyways, I want to share with you my favorite protein shake recipe right now. I take a scoop of the chocolate protein powder from Organifi. Then I pour in the remainder of my coffee from the morning that because I never drink my whole cup. I pour in the rest of my coffee into the chocolate. Then I put in a half a banana and two heaping teaspoons of PB2, which is like a powdered peanut butter. Add ice and blend a little bit of water so you get the perfect consistency. Maybe a stevia or two, and I'm telling you, it is the most delicioso recipe you will ever try. Now, if you already have your favorite protein powder, no problem. But Organifi is the company that I really trust for all of my nutritional needs. Anything that might be missing from my diet. I try to eat a whole foods diet. I try to eat real foods. I try not to eat processed foods. But let's face it, even if you're trying to be as perfect as possible, you're not always going to get in all your nutrients. Organifi is 100% organic. They have a prolific array of products that basically you can mix with water and get whatever nutrients you might be missing from your diet to improve your brain health, your immune system, sleep, you name it. 
If it's missing in your diet, they've got it. It's 100% organic, and you get 20% off when you go to Organifi. I'm going to spell it for you. It's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, Organifi.com forward slash Chalene. You use code Chalene, and you're going to get 20% off of everything. Again, it's Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash Chalene. Use code Chalene for 20% off. Charles, when did you begin to understand the depth of what went wrong? Yeah, so I began to understand the depth of what went wrong after we actually got Kira's medical records, after we requested them from Cedar. So a close family friend of ours who's an obstetrician and who works in labor and delivery, who we trusted, we just we sent them to her and we asked her to kind of help us make sense of what happened. And I remember she came over to my mother's house and sat down at my mother's dining room table. And what she said, she said, honestly, it's taken me a week to even have this conversation with you because I'm so hurt by what happened. What she just, what she said was, she said, this is going to hurt for me to say, she said, but what happened to Kira was not a medical tragedy it was a medical catastrophe, meaning that everything that could have gone wrong when it came to Cura's care went wrong. Every system that could have failed, failed Cura. And this, you know, Cura's case has kind of become this case that has been studied at medical schools of what not to do and what happens when systems fail. And I know one of the things that your listeners will be wondering is, well, what was it that was causing her to bleed in the first place? When we got the autopsy back, what we learned, Shalene, was that a couple of things contributed to actually the problem is that in the case of a, of a typical cesarean, right, where woman is healthy, baby is not in distress, the cut time, meaning the time from they make the first incision through the seven layers of skin into the uterus, remove the baby should take around 12 to 15 minutes. Okay. Okay. In a case where a woman like Kira has had a previous cesarean, right, you have to add about another five minutes because you have to carefully cut through the scar tissue and then do the same procedure. So you're talking in the ballpark when the baby's not in distress, the mother's not in distress, like Kira's situation, around 15 to 20 minutes approximately, right? Would you like to take a guess, or any of your listeners who are listening, like to take a guess of how long it took for the cut time? on my son Langston's delivery. Less than five minutes. Less than two minutes. And Charles, in the process, I have to ask in, 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 the, in the first pr- place, why did, because I've heard from many people that even just C-sections are given to women, especially a second C-section, because the hospitals are able to charge more for that. Yeah. that is it your understanding maybe that Kira should have actually had a vaginal birth? Yeah, so- it was interesting. And so I'll just say this too. So in the process, it, the t- it took less than two minutes. And in the process, he lacerated her bladder. And that's where she was bleeding from. That's what we learned when we got the autopsy back, right? But here's the thing. That should not have been fatal. Those things happen. But what happened was, and we talk about this catastrophe, is hospitals, particularly hospitals in California, have a set of postpartum hemorrhage guidelines, Policies that you follow when a woman is showing signs of postpartum hemorrhage. None of those things were done, right? Every single system that should have 
been in place a, a to failure a kept. failure over and over again but to answer your question that's a great question about vaginal birth after c-section or what are called v-backs right and it's interesting and i take ownership of it yes i think that it should have been something that should have been explored we found in an ob that we trusted and it was his recommendation because kira had had a cesarean on her first delivery that this is what she should have for the second one we trusted him and that There's was not other- the same ob that did the delivery and I don't know if, and I don't know if you know this part of the story. So this is another interesting part of the story. And I know that we're going to get into a lot of the things that are particularly troubling around healthcare and particularly in California, but this is another part of what happened to Kira that's troubling. So we found a doctor who we were, you know, Kira was a research fanatic. Cause that's one of the things people ask, like they seem relatively on it. How did they end up with such a quack? Right. Mm-hmm. So we found a doctor that we had amazing reviews online. We interviewed three OBs before we went with this guy, right? Had amazing bedside manner. Everybody in his office was great. As we start getting closer to Kira's due date, he starts to make mention of this other doctor named Dr. Naeem. And what he said is he was making, he was mentioning him in a, oh, by the way, sometimes I, if I'm not around, I work with this other guy and sometimes he catches babies for me and yada, yada, yada. And he's great. And I want you to meet him. And so he keeps on making suggesting that he wants us to meet this guy, right? And we're like, man, it's not a big deal. Like, sometimes that's what happens in big practices. Whoever's on call delivers the baby. Fast forward, when we showed up at the hospital that day, both of the doctors were there. Our original OB, as well as this new guy who we had never met, who our doctor was was talking about, Dr. Naeem. Dr. Naeem is the one that both doctors were in the delivery room, Right. Wow. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, I, I've got people trying to find where to park. I've got people flying in. I'm trying to focus on Kira. Two doctors are better than one, right? Dr. Naeem was the one that did the delivery. He's the one that rushed the cesarean. And what happened is after our son was born, basically our doctor congratulated us and he left. And then we were under the care of this guy, Dr. Naeem. What we found out when the California Medical Board did their investigation is that our original obstetrician who recommended the cesarean no longer even performs cesarean deliveries, but he failed to disclose that to us. He has a racket going with this guy, Naeem, where he refers all his stuff to this butcher, right? Were you in the OR during that, her her C-section? I was there. So it was Naeem that was doing the cutting. Yeah, but so that was the thing. I was on the other side of that blanket, so I couldn't sure, see who Absolutely, yep. Right? You know, so all I'm doing is oh, yeah, I'm, you just I'm, see just, her face. I'm holding hands. I'm holding hands. I'm just waiting to see the baby, Yeah. right? And really probably trying not to see too much, right? Right, right, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And so... And when you find- did the... You know, and I, I love that you dug right into the research. I think it's... I don't know if it's true for you, but for me, that's how I heal. It's how I yeah. cope. It's one of my coping mechanisms mm-hmm. is like, okay, I could get really angry or I can just start to... What What is this? Right. What just happened? And... When you searched into Dr. Naeem's background, did yeah. you find anything with the California Medical Boards? Yeah, I, I don't know the answers to these questions. Yeah, that's a great question. So not immediately, but what happened was there wasn't stuff with the California. The majority of the stuff had been buried because he had complaints that hadn't made it to be reviewed. Of course. What we found out upon after I think it was at least two and a half years before they finally rendered they finally got to Kira's investigation. Of course, they found him grossly negligent 
in Kira's death, but we also found out that he had been responsible for the near miss deaths of, I think, six other women, three of which were in a three month time span of Kira's death. So this man had a habit. And apparently, as I began to research and talk to staff that were coming forward at Cedar Sinai, he has a reputation of these rushed cesareans. He's known let me for ask, this. Charles, let me ask you this. How did you learn that? My own experience has been that of the dozens and dozens and dozens of women who reached out to me about their own experiences, mm-hmm. I would say to them, and did you file a complaint with the California Medical Board? Yeah. Did you file a complaint? And I would say less than 5% had. Sure. I even would say, well, I tried or I got confused when I went to the website or I didn't, I didn't even know I could do that. So yeah. how is it you learned of these other women and do you suspect that there are more? Yeah. So they were actually disclosed as a part of the report. Their names weren't, but what happened to them, the incidents were mentioned in the report that was done as a part of the investigation into Cure's death, that there were multiple women also associated with him that had complaints. And also other women did reach out to me via social media or even wrote letters But the majority of them, I found out about that complaint, but they're still coming forward. Mm -hmm. But what's more troubling, and I know we're going to get into a lot of this this conversation, is that the state of California Medical Board, even with all that, they gave him two and a half years probation. This man is still practicing medicine in the state of California. Yeah. Right. And that two and a half years probation, which I know that you're painful aware of, Shaleen, just like it is far too often, is even far below the California Medical Board's own minimum sentencing guidelines when it comes to these type of infractions. Is he required to disclose that? Excellent question. And he is not required in any shape, form, or fashion to disclose the fact that he is under disciplinary action or sanction from the California Medical Board. Isn't it crazy that if you go to a restaurant in California, you can see their their restaurant rating? Oh, yeah. But if a doctor is found to be negligent in the death of a patient, for some reason, that isn't a patient's right to know. Absolutely. Absolutely. A patient's right to know is one of the greatest failures of public trust, breaches of public trust in our country. Right. And same thing, if you look at it from even if you draw parallels to other professions, if you're an attorney and you mismanage five hundred dollars worth of a client's escrow money, they're going to take your license and they're going to publish that in the newspaper that you've been disbarred. Right. If you have inappropriate relationships with clients, they're going to disbar you. Like you said, if you're a restaurant and you leave a dirty knife in the sink and the health department comes, it's over for you. Right. Right. But doctors who are responsible for livelihoods and well-beings of families are don't have to disclose these things to the people that they serve. Charles, talk to me about what you discovered in terms of the data and research when you started looking at the death of black women during the uh, delivery process. Absolutely. So thank you. So as I said Overall, this maternal mortality crisis is something that's affecting women and families from all walks of life, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of your socioeconomic status, where you are geographically, 
But we cannot have a substantive conversation about the maternal mortality crisis in the United States without discussing how it is disproportionately impacting African-American women. African-American women are dying five times as often as Caucasian women in childbirth. Right. And so when we talk about risk factors, the reality of the situation is racism is not a risk factor. It's a social construct. And so there's also data, Shaleen, this will this will blow your mind. There's actually research that shows that African-American women, because some people will make the presumption that these women are poor, they don't have access to care. And that's why they're, you know, they're being left behind. There's research that shows that African-American women with graduate and postgraduate degrees are dying more often in childbirth than white women who are living below the poverty line. Why? Racism is the very short answer. Racism. There is no space in the, in the reality of the situation is this, is in order to fix it, and I know these conversations sometimes are uncomfortable for people, but we have to have, we have, to have these conversations in order Absolutely. for us to fix it, right? So the reality of the situation is there is no place in our society that racial bias and inequity is more prevalent other than maybe our legal system than healthcare, right? And so when we talk about a system, even if we want to take it all the way back to its roots, there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. James Marion Sims, who was, who's considered the, the father of modern day gynecology. He is, I think he has patents on probably about six instruments that are, I think even the same, the, the sim speculum is even used in gynecological exams today. Dr. James Marion Sims perfected his surgical techniques on enslaved women, on three women by the name of Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, without anesthesia and without their consent, right? But his methods are still the foundation upon which obstetrics are built. So the reality of the situation is, if you are a medical provider and you have biases, you have hangups, you have isms, you have two choices. Either you need to take steps to address those issues or you need to find something else to do, period. Because these isms, these hangups, these biases are having catastrophic and oftentimes fatal consequences. And so when we talk about it, people ask the question, do I think Kira was here, would be here today if she was a white woman? My answer is absolutely. It's a hard pill for me to swallow. Do you believe that those biases played a role in their disbelief that she was actually in distress? Do you think that they are less likely to believe a black woman's pain tolerance? Yeah. So I'll so take that. Where, where did it begin with her case? Yeah. So I think that, I think that, even and so when we talk about pain tolerance, I'm so glad you touched on that. There are literally textbooks in modern day medicine, medical schools that literally teach that black people have up until about 10 years ago, black people have thicker skin and higher pain tolerance. This is in textbooks in the United States of America. Thicker skin, higher pain tolerance for African-Americans. Right. When we talk about Kira, there is this thing of. A good friend of mine, Dr. Neil Shaw, who's an obstetrician at Harvard, he said it so profoundly, is that in America, we are literally disbelieving black women to death. There is a mm. there is a notion that black women are not believed, their concerns are not validated. And so at this point, 
I deal with families day in and day out that have experienced similar situations. And it's the same thing over and over again. I had concerns. I brought those concerns to my providers. I was dismissed. I was delayed. And by the time they finally did something about it, it was too late. Mm. Right. It's the same thing over and over and over again. The thing about implicit or unconscious biases, unconscious, right, is you don't realize that you are less likely to validate this person's pain. Right. Because it's unconscious. But those unconscious things are having catastrophic, you know, and so when we talk about so this, it's also it's also that, but then there's also latitude and lived experience. So there is this factor. People will say, well, Charles, what were you doing? Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you yell? I would have torn that place apart. What do you think happens to me as a black man? The moment I slam my fist mm-hmm. on the nurse's station, the You're moment removed. I get loud, I would be removed from mm-hmm. the situation. Security mm-hmm. would be called. So we have to talk about the lived experiences, right? And as similar as we may be, right? For instance, right? I'm a a huge fan of your, your, you have a beautiful family, right? At the end of the day, regardless of our skin color, we want, me and your husband want the same things for our families. We want them to be happy. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be safe. The reality of the situation is a Caucasian husband has a different set of latitude to express his concerns than I do as a black man, Right. If he yells, if he is somebody that is, he is upset and he is frustrated, he's advocating for his wife. If I do those things, I'm seen as a threat. Mm -hmm. And so even in that, the whole time Kira's condition was going downhill, the whole time that she was in immense pain, you know what she kept saying to me the entire time? No. Baby, stay calm. Please stay calm. Because even in her most vulnerable- That someone else- of another race does not you you're having to think about how do i how do i get people's attention without becoming a threat she's looking out for me she's thinking that i know and she knows me she knows how i feel about her right and she knows Mm -hmm. what i will do to protect my family yeah but she knew that the moment i lost my cool the moment i raised my voice that i would be seen as a threat and not only that you have to picture this is that I'm there as the patriarch and the entire family is looking to me. Yeah. Right. And so what, and so we could have had a scene that could have been Domino's, her brother is there. It's me. And I'm like, my presence is going to be felt. Right. And so versus having the, the autonomy to raise my voice and slam my fist, I'm, I'm literally having to beg. I'm literally begging. Right. In the most non-threatening way I can, this nurse, like, please help us, please. Nothing. Did you ever discover like why was she denied? First of all, okay, so she's being denied this CAT scan for more than 10, 12 hours, but they knew that she was hemorrhaging. And so that was the thing. You make a great point. Is and so I was focused on the CT scan, but what when when you talk to people who are in this, and I'm sure that you'll have some some clinicians that are viewers of your podcast, is everybody who's who's heard the story or who's seen the medical records, that the CT scan wasn't even necessary. Let's get her the surgery. Blood levels were there. The fold, the blood in the catheter. Everybody has told me without a doubt, she should have been back to surgery no later than six o'clock mm. based on everything that was there. Right. And so that's the thing. That's why this is so painful is because it's so preventable. And another piece of the data. Why is that didn't this, that happen? Have you, have you been able to like figure out like, why was she not just taken back for surgery? I haven't, I, ha- I haven't. And so that's what I'm hoping to learn. We're still moving forward with litigation 
And I'm hoping that somewhere through this process, we will get some answers. But that's another thing, too. When we talk about statistics, the CDC has determined that 60 percent of these maternal deaths are considered preventable. Right. And that's regardless of race. 60 percent of these mothers that we're losing are mothers that should be there at first day of kindergarten. That should be at graduation. That should be dancing at weddings. Right. Over 60 percent are dying needlessly and our and our healthcare system is failing them time and time again. You know, I I never want to make my listeners feel like I'm trying to create this paranoia. And I know there's someone listening right now who is about to give birth. Yes. And now they're thinking about their birth plan. And not to digress, but I have to go there just to hopefully calm someone's nerves. If you were giving your own sister advice today, what advice would you give her with regard to her her birth plan? That's an excellent question. And I'm so glad you brought that because that's one of the things that's the hardest thing about this for me is I never want to make women think that the sky is falling, particularly at a time in your life when you should be excited. Yeah. You should have, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Br- bringing life into this world is amazing and beautiful. What I want you to do is I just want you to be more informed and more empowered about what potentially are some challenges and how to recognize those challenges. And when you recognize those challenges, how to advocate for yourself, right? And how to empower the people who are around you, who support you and love you to advocate on your behalf if you are unable to, right? Do you suggest someone hire a doula? I'm a big proponent of doulas. If you are able to, please look into hiring a doula and or a midwife, right? So here's my thing. I believe that every woman in this country should have the birth of her choice. If she wants to give birth in her bathtub at home and that's how she feels, if she wants to give birth in the hospital with every intervention and drug available to her, that's her choice. And she should be able to have that. I'm in any sense. I think the doulas are great and they can work in, in different settings. I am a huge proponent of doulas. People who aren't, if you aren't familiar, doulas are amazing people that will assist you through the birthing process. And will really try and help to avoid unnecessary interventions. And they're also excellent advocates if you're in a situation where things deviate somewhat from your birth plan to help you understand all of the options. I think it's critically important for anyone, not just in a birthing setting, but anyone who's going into a healthcare experience to understand the fundamental notion of what informed consent is, right? And so informed consent basically is something that all hospitals are supposed to adhere to. And basically that is that a hospital is required to inform you of all the potential outcomes of a potential procedure, including the outcome of simply doing nothing so that you as the patient can evaluate what it is that you would like to choose to do. Informed consent is critical. Understanding the chain of command and how to get a second opinion or advance your concern is very critical. Most healthcare settings, most hospitals, you may have to dig for it a little bit, but have what's called a patient's bill of rights. So understanding what are your rights as a patient, what is your latitude and what are you able to do to ask for a second opinion, to ask for a different provider if you feel that this provider is not addressing your concerns, right? Even small things that I advise people to do that make a big difference if things can get, if things get 
kind of tricky. If you're in a hospital situation and you request a procedure, you request a scan, you request a medication and you're denied or you're delayed, request immediately that they make a note of that in your chart and see how quickly ah, you get that done. Really? Right? So make, make a oh, note yeah. of it. Yeah, so you just you, say, simply place that place yeah, a so note I need you, in I need, my I, file. Yeah, so say for instance, if you're in a situation mm-hmm. and you say, you know, you I think that you scan. may have, you want a CAT scan and they say, no, we don't think that's necessary. Okay, well, I'd like for you to please make a note of that in my chart that, it, mm. that at 4.15, you denied me, right? Because yeah. those things... Those things are important. And so it's also important. And there's and there's ways to have these conversations. They don't necessarily have to be adversarial, right? But there's something that there are things that we can do to be more informed, more empowered when we go into these settings that will make sure that not only you are informed as the potential mother, but your loved ones understand how to advocate for you as well. It's critically important. Charles, you've devoted your life really to advocating for patients' rights yes. and making changes to the law. And at the same time, you're in the midst of your own litigation against Cedar sinai Yeah. What can you tell us was perhaps the most shocking things that you've learned having been a resident of Atlanta, Georgia, moved to California, and your wife passes at the hospital here in California? What things did you learn after her her death? Yeah, so you know, like I said, you know, my world was was turned upside down, and you know, now you're a single father. You've got single two dad, boys, single dad, trying to trying to figure it out, trying to do diapers and and potty train and sleep train all at the same time. Talk about a blur, so but I just can't even fathom having an 18 month old and a newborn, and it. Having a newborn in the depth of the deepest grief. So I'll show you this. This picture sits on my desk, and this is one of my favorite pictures. And this just sums up that point in my life. So Kira was really big on pictures and documenting every month when we had Charles. And so I was trying to do the same thing. So this is me, and I took the boys to try and get pictures done. We're all dressed up in our matching outfits, but look at how it turned out. Can you see that? That's it, right? That's just that's just it. And I kind of call it my beautiful chaos. And that was my mistake because I scheduled pictures at nap time. And my <laughs> little guy who's the most the coolest kid ever was not having that. He was like, yo, we're not doing yeah. this. So he was protesting. But Gosh, yeah, it was a tough time. And for me, I think the way that I was channeling my grief was I wouldn't let anybody help. And I was trying to do it all myself like because I felt like that's what Kira would want me to do or that's what we'd be doing if we were here. But to answer your question, as far as what I learned, it was hard enough trying to put those pieces back together. But as we we weren't, we were getting kind of stalemated with Cedars and we were asking for questions, we were asking for clarity, trying to get understanding. And it became very clear, very, very clear, very quickly that they were not going to cooperate and they were not going to give us any answers. So we the only way that we would get some sort of clarity about what happened is we would have to file a civil lawsuit. And so when we made the decision to move forward with the lawsuit, that's when we learned about the most unjust set of laws around patients' rights of its kind in the history of the United States. And, the, and that is the California microcap. So since 1965, the state of California has had in place a set of laws called the microcaps, 1975, I'm sorry that limit these microcaps, limit the value of human life. I want everybody to listen to this. In instances of medical negligence, 
to $250,000, right? So take a moment to think about that. I want you to think about the person, about your life, about, you know, the person that you love the most. And then somebody tell you that their life is only worth $250,000. And not only does that add insult to injury for patients, but it is unconstitutional because it obstructs their ability to get civil justice. Because what happens is when the when the value of these cases and these lives are limited to $250,000, lawyers will not take on these cases because it will cost more to try a case than what's recoverable. And I know some people have a bad taste in their mouths about lawyers, but the economics just don't make sense. So what happens then is it also goes from a violation of civil rights to a huge breach of, of public trust because of the fact that these doctors aren't held accountable civilly, they continue to practice medicine unchecked. And we have these medical monsters that are continuing to prey on people and disfigure, dismember, severely maim, catastrophically injured patients and go about their lives. Yes. I can tell you stories. I know that you've met some friends that are just, you know, near and dear to me. So even in my case, I had an attorney who was representing me, but from the onset, he was pressuring me to settle. After a second round of mediation with Cedar Sinai, my attorney literally said to me, in mediation, he said, Look, you need to settle and you need to settle right now. And I'm saying, No, I don't want to settle. He says, Look, I'm not taking this case to trial. You're not going to get any money. And I'm telling you, it's not about money for me. I need, I need transparency. I need to know what happened to my wife. Yeah. And he says, look, you need to settle. You need to settle right now. If you do not settle, I'm going to withdraw from your case and I'm going to go to the courts and I'm going to tell them that by not settling, you're not acting in the best interest of your children. Listen, when it comes to these attorneys, I, and I've had so many people say to me, that's just ridiculous. Why would an attorney accept that? Well, first of all, you have to understand that they're getting a third of 250K. And for many of them, because it is so hard to beat a doctor who has the absolute best representation provided by unlimited resources. That's right. Unlimited resources. They can spend because they rarely pay out. They can spend millions preparing a case or at least hundreds of thousands to prepare a case. Whereas the attorney that you've hired, they're looking at, you know, just a, a one third of 250, which means that the the victim's family might get 188, if you're really cutting it right down to the bare tax, 188K. And this attorney is going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps, to take a case to trial where you really have no idea what the jury is And you say. may not. And that's only if you win. That's right. It's only if you win. Right. So, you know, like at first I was so annoyed. I'm like, what the, all these attorneys are, all they care about is money. And then I just realized, like, it's just they can't. It's volunteerism and the laws are set up against or in favor of and and listen, in favor of the doctors. But I, I know you and I both agree. Doctors, this isn't about all doctors are bad or the medical system. That's not our point. Our point is that the laws are flawed yes. and patients' rights come last. Exactly. And you make a great point, right? A couple of things you talked, you you hit you hit the nail right on the head is that it is volunteerism. And I used to be so frustrated. I was so angry. Like, how is my attorney going to tell me this? This is supposed to work for me. But the more when I really got on the other side of it, I understood that it just didn't make sense. Right. Is he was doing the best he 
he was doing the best he could with what he had to work with based upon the laws in California. So after that happened, Shalene, he did exactly that. He withdrew from my case six wow. weeks before I was supposed to go to trial with Cedars. And I was stuck to represent myself against the most powerful medical institution in the country with unlimited resources. Because you didn't right? have another attorney who would take the case. Nobody would take the case. I met, And then I met with 20 other attorneys and nobody would take the case. Did you consider so, at that point settling just to... No. <laughs> no. No. Hell no. Hell no. My whole thing is I was, I'll tell you, like I said, I'll look, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna tell the real right here on the Shalene Johnson podcast, things that I've never said publicly, right? So I'm here representing myself in pro per, representing myself. So imagine this. Imagine coming home. Now I'm self-represented and Cedar smells blood in the water, right? They're like, we're going to drown him. Coming home oh, yeah. and literally seeing boxes stacked up as high as my head on my front porch, dumping discovery, dumping motions on me. So literally, as so I said, I'm going to tell some stuff that I've never said publicly. So I put together this mis this band of misfits. I had a friend that was a paralegal. I had a cousin <laughs> that had been, listen, that had been disbarred. And we would just sit down at my dining room table and try and figure it out, right? Randomly, I got a letter in the mail from this guy who was a retired paralegal in California that just happened to be at the courthouse that day and was looking for somebody to represent a person in, in medical negligence and sat in the back of the hearing that my attorney was withdrawing from my case. Wow. And he was like, yo, my heart goes out to you. I want to help you. This guy, I've, I've still never met him. I've still never seen him. He's 65 years old and retired paralegal was helping me file motions wow, wow. and like try and figure out how to do the dockets online myself. Right. Then, okay. you know, like, and so I had to figure out how to, File a motion to get my my case postponed. I had to file all. I'm I'm trying to figure it all out. Holy In the God. process, the folks from Consumer Watchdog, who I know that you're familiar with, yes. reached out to me just to check on me, and they're like, "Look," and I told them that I was representing myself, and they're like, "Look, I think there's some people we need to talk to," and they introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Nick Rowley, um, who's one of the baddest, you know, what's walking the planet. It just so happened. That's why I have the way God aligns things, Shalene, and, you know, not to go too far, get, get on this horse, but whatever you believe in, right? Whatever, higher power, whatever, whatever your belief system is. If you don't have any belief system, what I know is that the way that the universe lined things up at the time, Nick and his wife were pregnant and they were due to give birth at Cedar sinai Wow. So when they heard your story, like, he's like, I want to help you. And so I went from having no representation to having this amazing legal team, but I am one of the few. And he's so, you know, the only reason I'm able to go forward is because I have somebody who is willing to, like you said, who is doing this for charity, who is who is willing to volunteer. And so that's why for me, I'll never settle because there's too many people depending on me, mm. right? Because I am the exception, the rare exception of somebody who either has the has the fortitude to go down this road has the resources and has the legal representation, right? I know that this is something that you have poured tremendous resources into, right? Because it's near and dear to you. I know people that have liquidated their, the only way that you can get a lawyer is people are liquidating their their savings. Tracy mm -hmm. Dominguez in Bakersfield, California, her daughter and her grandson died. She, she liquidated her savings, $45,000 out of her pocket and is left with nothing. Motion after motion, motion. And then the attorney dropped her and now she's representing herself. Wow. Right. 
This is unconstitutional. This is outrageous. And it's time for it to change. And we're going to make sure that it does. Talk to me about the change that you think needs to happen. And how, how can people who are listening help those in California and those outside of California? Sure, sure. So right now, what we've decided to do is this has been something that has been going on for far too long. Since 1975, greedy insurance companies have collected malpractice insurance premiums month after month and hardly ever have to pay out claims in the state of California. So they are having record profits. This is a California. That's that's what I think people really understand. So you have to understand that the medical insurance companies, the companies that insure the doctors, and there's just a few big ones, Mm -hmm. doctors pay into these funds. Few cases where rightfully someone who's either who killed or maimed cases never paid out the funds to support and sure that these these this cap stays in place and that they can defend an attorney who's or sorry a physician who's did egregious malpractice they can spend a fortune defending them absolutely absolutely you're so you're so right and so that's what this is this is not about this is not a fight against doctors let me be clear no i truly believe that the majority of doctors have committed their lives to making sure that the that their patients and their families' lives are better. However, when there are instances of clear-cut negligence, racism, bias, neglect, there has to be accountability, right? In any other space in the world, there's accountability, right? And it's not like you're also going after them. That's why these doctors pay their medical malpractice insurance premiums because things go wrong. Things happen, and that's why it's there. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is these insurance companies are willing to do anything to keep these caps in place because yeah. it makes them so profitable. Yes. Right? So what we've decided to do, and they do things, and I know we don't have a lot of time to go into it, but what they've done is even in the state of California, and this is something for California listeners to be aware of, there's something called the micro-pledge. All right? This is going to blow your mind. Yes. Tell the us The way about this it. works is- if you're a politician, right, and say you're, you know, you're Stephen and you're from, you know, Rancho Cucamonga and you decide you want to run for state senate. Well, these medical malpractice special interest groups are going to approach you and they're going to ask you to sign what's called the micro pledge. And it's literally a document committing to the fact that you will not do anything during your time in the state legislature to overturn these caps. OK, now. You have a choice. You can sell your soul to the devil and you can sign on. Okay. And if you sign the pledge, then they will make contributions to your campaign. If you do not sign the pledge, then they will pump tens of thousands of dollars of contributions, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars of contributions into your opponent's campaign. That's how they make sure that the California state legislature is stacked with people who will not do anything to overturn those caps. So this is what we're doing. Can to, we find out who, which of our politicians have signed those micro pledges? Yeah, so all Consumer Watchdog. Yeah, we can get you some resources about that, right? And another thing too is ask them, ask them before you give them your vote. If you get the when opportunity, has a politician ever been honest? Well, the thing is, they need to disclose that. If you ask them that in writing, or you ask them that in public, and you find uh-huh. out, you can do the research so you can actually track the money from these packs that are contributing. It's all public knowledge. Excellent. It's all public knowledge, right? So there's one big one called CAP, C-A-P-P, I think is one of the big ones. And then they also 
excuse me, will contribute directly from these companies. So the microclaims. So because so many of the elected officials are bought and paid for, we're going to do it. We're going to take a different approach. We are going to take the power out of the legislature's hands and we're going to give it to the people. So in November, we are going to put this in the ballot and give people the opportunity to vote on it. So in November in California, there's going to be a ballot measure called the Fairness for Injured Patients Act on the ballot that people can vote for. Voting yes for the for the Fairness for Injured Patients Act will do away with these archaic caps. It will adjust them for inflation. It will give juries the opportunity, as, as they should be, to determine what is fair, what is adequate, and what is just. And so, you know, we need everybody. You can go to Fairness Act dot com and sign the petition to support you can learn more information so that's what's going on in the state of california on a federal level i've been extremely fortunate to testify before congress and work on right now i have 13 i have a package of 13 bills before congress right now called the momnibus and these bills are going to make unprecedented investments in making our country a better safer place for mothers and babies we have Mm. bills that are going to deal with technology, making sure that there is technological innovation to support mothers. We have social determinants of change. We have specifically how climate change is affecting moms, right? Environmental things like, you know, lead in the water, toxins in our air, how are those things impacting mothers? Diversifying the perinatal workforce. We have a bill specifically addressing the needs of incarcerated mothers. I don't know if you all know, but as recent as I think 2017, there were forced hysterectomies going on in prisons in California. Right here in Georgia, we had an ICE facility that was doing forced sterilization of inmates. It's crazy. So we're going to address that. And also within this package of bills is the Kira Johnson Act, named for my late wife. And this is going to take important steps to make investments in community-based African-American female-led organizations. So we're talking about the doulas in the mm-hmm. community, the mm-hmm. people that are providing sex education, family planning. And then we're also going to take important steps toward provider accountability by creating what are called dignified standard of care compliance offices. So the way this will work, Shaleen, is that the federal government will fund these compliance offices that will be within hospitals that are independent from hospitals. Okay. Ah, sure. So absolutely. right now, if you go into a hospital and you have a situation of you, you're neglected, you're overlooked, all these things, you're going to have somebody, you're going to meet with somebody from there. It's going to be watching over for the, watching out for the hospital's backside. Sure. This is going to be independent from the hospital. Mm. And here's the cool part is that the federal government will collect and publish that data. Right. So by airing out these hospitals laundry, it's going to go a long way towards accountability. So where's the best place that we can send people to take a look at all of these things, including the two two places, two places. The first place is going to be fairnessact.com. And you can learn about all the things that are going on with these microcaps. You can sign the pledge. You can support. You can read about some stories of some amazing human beings that have been through so much and have committed to fighting to overturn this alongside myself. And then if you go to four cure for moms, yeah, the number four KIRA, the number four MOMS, which is our website, you can read about it. You can take literally 30 seconds. You enter your name, your zip code, and our website will automatically send a letter to your local congressperson and yes. both of your state senators demanding that they support the momnibus. 30 That's seconds. Amazing. That's awesome. That's incredible. Charles, I'm so glad that 
we got to meet and, you know, we got connected by some great people and it's sad that it's under these circumstances, but you you know, you are just, I'm just so glad that Kira married you, you know, and, and nothing could ever bring back your wife. I can't imagine regardless of, even if there wasn't a cap, nothing could ever account for what it must've felt like to have to tell your son, nothing your oldest son, who probably was a little bit more aware, at least, you know, your youngest son will never remember his mother. Yeah. And I know that that is what fuels your passion in large part, but what you're doing now is going to change the world. And and just the fact that you reached out to me, I mean, that just meant so much to me. Like, you know, there's a idea that, oh, because the women that I've been helping are victims of a plastic surgeon, you know, People make fun of it. Oh, they weren't happy with their results. And they they just don't realize that it's so much bigger, deeper, and more profoundly upsetting to know what a plastic surgeon can get away with. But the fact that, you know, you reached out to me and and offered your help and to share your story now with our listeners means the world. And I I know that we're going to make a change and we are not going to forget this ballot, when it happens in November, you know that you have someone who's going to campaign and do whatever I can to promote that, to make sure that everybody gets out to vote for that. No, look, and you know, the, it, the, look, I'm just, I'm just grateful for you. I just, um, uh, you know, you're truly one of my heroes. I know that this stuff is not easy. I know that there are a lot of things you could be doing with your time, but taking on this fight and not only that, reliving your trauma. And I have a tremendous place in my heart for people that are willing to do that and willing to do that selflessly, because I know that every time it's ripping at those scabs, right. Offering that support to those other women, hearing their stories. I know how difficult that is holding them up and being a torch for them, but you've been relentless. And, you know, as this goes forward, you know, I've got your back next time, you know, you have an appearance, you let me know, I'll pull up and I'll sit up there and I'll, you know, (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I make sure this guy, <laughs> hey, 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 hey. You know what I'm saying? Like, I so, love it. seriously, I just, CJ, I just appreciate CJ to CJ. Hey, exactly. They don't want to mess with That's us. Right. They don't. That's they don't, right. You're they don't awesome. I appreciate you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to all your listeners. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this show, please don't forget to make sure you are subscribed and following along. The Shaleen Show is available on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and most every podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star review and tell us specifically what you enjoyed. We'd love to know. The Shaleen Show is released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. For Tuesdays and Thursdays, be sure to follow and subscribe to Shaleen's other podcast, Build Your Tribe, which she co-hosts with her son, Brock Johnson. It's all about business, social media, and marketing, and devoted to helping you make more money and live more life. Links to anything referenced in today's episode, as well as show sponsors and other podcasts, can be found below in our show notes. 